Um, Today we continue our series from Mark's wonderful account of the life of Jesus, that extraordinary life that was lived about 2,000 years ago. Uh, And what we're doing today is to help us continue to explore that life. If, If you're someone who's started to explore, well, this really is a key section in the life of Jesus. Uh, And we want you to see for yourself. If you've been reading it with friends, I hope what we do today will help consolidate what you understand about Jesus and equip you to read it with friends. I want to start by considering bias, conscious or unconscious bias. I hope you're aware that all of us are biased. We bring bias to almost everything that we do. I know we like to think that we're rational, uh, impartial, balanced people. But we aren't, are we? (laughs) We're biased in all sorts of ways. This lady uh, called Jennifer Eberhardt is a professor at Stanford University. She spent her life, well, at least her academic life, studying unconscious bias, trying to work out how do you expose something that people aren't aware of? How do you design experiments that show that we're all biased? Because that's actually what her experiments have shown. Um, And her conclusion is that it afflicts everybody to some degree. Now, conscious bias is fairly straightforward, isn't it? Some of it's actually quite good. Rosemary is the only woman for me. I'm totally biased. And I hope you agree that that's a good bias to have. Some is pretty neutral and innocuous. The Eagles are the best football team. Not true, but who cares if you believe it or not? But some of it is evil, isn't it? Black people are stupid. That's evil bias. To to believe such things just because of the colour of their skin has enormous negative repercussions. But unconscious bias is a much more complex beast because you're not conscious of it. You you, you don't know about it. Uh, Systemic racism has hit the, uh, the news in many ways over the last three or four years, which is an unconscious bias. And if it's real, it's insidious. Eberhardt has actually shown that it is quite real, especially in the police forces in the US. And one form of unconscious bias is called confirmation bias. You might might have heard of that, where we filter the information that comes to us. So we only see the evidence that supports what we already believe, uh, our existing views. And we're blind to other evidence, although we don't know it. And if we're blind to it, we can't correct it. We can't do much about it. We're just left in our unconscious bias. We need someone, someone outside us to expose us and help us. And when it comes to the person of Jesus, all of us are prone to be biased. Some of it conscious, some of it unconscious. Some of us are afflicted by confirmation bias. I'm a convinced Christian, which means I'm biased but it can happen the other way as well. And in today's section of Mark's Gospel, we see conscious and unconscious bias exposed to light. There's sort of blindness everywhere in the chapter, in the section. I don't know whether you listened uh, as Ed was reading it, but did you notice that Jesus accused his disciples of blindness? He doesn't mean they haven't got eyes. He means that internally they don't see. They're they're biased. They're not able to see. Verse uh, 17 and 18, do you still not see or understand? Verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? And then Jesus meets a man who's physically blind and he heals him. But it actually starts earlier, this blindness. In verse 11, the Pharisees, the religious keen beans of the day, 
They come to Jesus with a question. They ask him to do a sign, a miracle from God, something that would demonstrate God's power. Now, that could be a legit question, but it's remarkable that they ask it at this point because what's the little bit before about? You haven't got it in front of you probably, but in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 8, Jesus has just healed 4,000 people with seven bread rolls. Now, you might think that's just psychological, but the disciples collected all the leftover crumbs afterwards and they had seven basketfuls full of crumbs. Start with seven bread rolls, you finish with seven basketfuls. Something extraordinary has happened, a, a sign from heaven. But the Pharisees refused to see it. It's there, it's in plain sight, everybody's seen it, but they don't want to see. People often say to me, Tim, if God would do a miracle, then I'd believe. And that could be a legit question, couldn't it? So I often ask them, well, what sort of miracle would do for you? What do you want God to do? And they'll say something like, well, if God sort of raised somebody from the dead, or if God could heal somebody born blind, where all those synapses have never been created, that their eyes and the optic nerves haven't been formed, if God could do that, then I'd believe. And I usually say, well, he has. And I say, what? Oh, you don't mean the Bible, do you? I mean, you can't believe those, can you? They're just myths and legends, aren't they? And I say, well, actually, I think there's good reason to believe that it all actually happened. And their response is often, oh, no, those things can't happen. They refuse to see. <laughs> they have happened, I'm convinced. The historical evidence is there. But if I don't want to see it, I won't see it. There's none so blind as those who close their eyes. But the disciples are a bit different. They see, but they don't see. Uh, see, they've seen Jesus' signs, that the incredible things that he's done up close, but they still don't actually see what that is about. They're, they have this unconscious bias, a, a blindness. And in verse 15, Jesus gets in the boat with them. He warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. <laughs> the yeast is using an image fairly clearly of an, an attitude, this conscious bias that refuses to see when it's plain in front of your eyes. Uh, uh, yeast is that stuff that just permeates all of the bread, so it all rises. It's, well, when it's good, it's good, but when it's an evil thing like a virus, it's, it's insidious and, and affects everything. <laughs> and their response, they say, is Jesus rounding on us because we forgot to go to the bakery? Like they just totally miss what Jesus is on about. They just, they're, they're like this, aren't they? And so Jesus tries to open their eyes. See, even recently, Jesus has done things that they have seen up close. Back in chapter 6, he's fed a group of more than 5,000 people with five loaves and a couple of fish. And in chapter 8, he's fed 4,000 with seven little bread rolls. And in each case, Jesus has deliberately taken the disciples on the inner in what's happening. He's got the disciples to get all the people to sit down on the ground in groups so they actually know how many people were there. It wasn't just a rough guess. He gets them to, to work out and explore how much food have we got in this crowd. They come back, five loaves and a couple of fish, seven bread rolls. That, that, that's what we've got. They know what they start with. He gets the disciples to distribute the bread to the crowds. It's tangible. They're, they're part of the process. And afterwards, he gets them to collect all the leftovers. They've seen it up close. There's nothing uh, to, to uh, justify them not seeing and Jesus does a little sort of test with them. He says in verse 19, you know, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 
They get it right. Twelve, they remember. And the 4,000, how many? Seven. So in terms of exam, they get 100%. But they don't see. They don't understand. What don't they understand? Do you still not understand, says Jesus in verse 21? They don't understand the significance of what is happening in front of their faces. I presume they think these are just cool party tricks. It's great to hang out with somebody who can do this sort of thing, who can feed you with almost nothing. But they haven't asked the question they should be asking. What does this tell us about Jesus? Because no one else is doing these things. Only Jesus is doing these things. But they refuse. They're not aware even that they're not asking the right question. I remember at the end of dinner one night at home, the sink was piled up with dirty plates and saucepans and stuff like that. And I got up from the table and uh, walked towards my desk. Uh, And Rosemary said to me, Tim, can you see any dirty dishes? I got 100%. Yes, I can see lots of dirty dishes. So he subtly doesn't work with me. So she had to ask another question. Tim, did you dirty any of those dishes? And then it clicked. (laughs) I got what she was trying to say. Yep, somebody needed to go and do the washing up. And for some of us, Jesus is a... <laughs> is somebody a bit like that? He, he does amazing things. He heals people, he raises people, he, he, he casts out demons. And it's all sort of familiar and, it, and it's good and cool, but we're oblivious to the significance of it. We just haven't reflected much. Cool party tricks, but maybe we're just too blind to ask. We have an unconscious bias. And then Mark recounts the, the story of Jesus healing a man who's born blind. He takes him out of the public eye and he heals him, except this is really bizarre because for the only time in all the accounts of Jesus healing, it seems like Jesus fails. He heals him and he says, can you see? And the guy says, well, sort of. You know, I, I, I'm getting light but I see people, but they look like trees walking around. You can sort of imagine that, can't you? you know, it's, if you can't see very well, if it's all blurry, then you're not quite sure what they are. And then Jesus has a second go, and now he can see clearly. Now, I'm not quite sure why Jesus took two, go- two times, two goes to heal this person. But the significance of it, I know why Mark uh, uh, recounted this story at this point. Because the experience of this man born blind parallels, mirrors the experience of the disciples. They're they're blind. They need Jesus to open their eyes. But when he does, they only half see, as we'll see. So what do they finally see? The disciples, as I said, are, are sort of blind, but they don't know they're blind. And Jesus goes to heal them. And he does it by asking them some questions. In verse uh, 27, he asks, who do people say I am? And they report some of the speculations, but then he makes it personal. But what about you? Verse 29, who do you say I am? Now, I hope you realise that that normally is a very bizarre question. If I walked up to you, especially if we know each other, and I say, who am I? Who do you think I am? I presume you're going to say, oh, Bugs Bunny, obviously. Like, you're Tim. Well, why are you asking? The only time that question makes sense is if the person is doing stuff that just doesn't fit with, he's just Jesus. He's just the carpenter. There's something more to Jesus for this question to make sense. And the disciples know there's something more. 
He must be, in some sense, travelling incognito. There's a story about King Henry VIII, who was king of England in the 1500s. Um, He was worried that his police force was just slacking on the job and not doing it properly. So he decided he'd sort of get rid of his robes as the king, dress himself as just a normal commoner and walk out on the streets and see what they're doing. Because if he walked past dressed up as a king, of course they'd be on best behaviour. But if they didn't know, then maybe he'd catch them out. Well, the story goes he got arrested. (laughs) And he said to the, the policeman who arrested him, who do you think I am? And the guy said, the guy I've arrested, I'm going to throw you in prison. Didn't work, did it? But verse 29, who do you say I am? Peter doesn't respond by saying, well, come on, you're Jesus. He says, you're the Messiah. It finally clicks for him and for the other disciples. All those extraordinary things they've seen Jesus doing, those feedings, those healings, the forgiving of people, you are the Messiah. Now, for most of us, that's a bit of sort of jargon. It's a bit hard to work out what it's about. Messiah. What's a Messiah? Well, literally, it just means someone who's been anointed, usually with oil. Um, Now, it's helpful to know that the the Hebrew word Messiah, that we get Messiah from, is also the Greek word Christ, Christos. So oil is chrism. So to be anointed is to be a Christ. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're actually saying Jesus Messiah. So we need to understand what Messiah is. Now, it's a word we don't use often, although it does come up occasionally. Um, So, for example, uh, there was a report released this week into the WA Liberals debacle in the last election. They were totally wiped out. And they haven't used the language, but I can imagine some are using the language. The WA Liberal Party needs a messiah. That is, they need someone who's going to come along and lead them out of ignominy, out of defeat, into victory. And such a person you'd call a messiah or a football team that comes bottom of the the table in one year, almost always sacks their coach and gets a new one, hoping that will be their messiah, will lead them to crowning glory. We even talk about messiah complex, don't we? What's a messiah complex? Well, it's when you think you can save the world. So a messiah is somebody who saves people by leading, not by being the ball boy, but by being the coach, the king, the whatever. And in the ancient world, it was mainly kings who were anointed. To call someone a messiah is to say you're an anointed king who will save, who will bring us to victory. But Peter doesn't say you're a messiah. He says you're the messiah. Not just one in a string of possible messiahs, maybe helps the footy team or the WA Liberals, but the messiah which is shorthand for God's anointed king. So for about a thousand years now, Israel, the Jews, had been waiting and hoping and expecting this Messiah, the Messiah, the king God had promised, who would put the whole world right for them. So the Messiah is about God's anointed king. An Old Testament passage that gives us helpful insight into what it means is Psalm 2 written somewhere around probably 900 BC, before Jesus comes. And it pictures the nations in plot against God and his anointed, his Messiah. There's God who's made the the whole universe and his king that he's appointed. And the kings of the earth, the peoples of the earth are in revolt. They're shaking their fist at God saying, we want to throw off his shackles. We don't want to live under his rule. We want to do our own thing. 
How do you think God's going to respond? Is he going to feel threatened? No, God laughs. What a stupid thing to do. Do you think, even if you had all the atomic bombs in the world at the moment, do you think you can shake your fist at God and win? You've got to be joking. That's, that's laughable. He scoffs and he says, sorry, guys, I've installed my king. No one's going to shift him. And then the king, the Messiah, responds with what God has promised him. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break any that revolt against you. That is, you're my king, says God, and you will rule over everybody forever. So what should we do? Therefore, verse 10, be, be wise, O kings, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son. Now, this isn't about affection. Uh, have you ever seen those movies from ancient times where the, the defeated enemy or the loyal knight uh, kneels before the king or the queen and they kiss their hand or they kiss their ring? It's a sign of submission and loyalty, allegiance to this king. You will live and die for this king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. But notice the last line too. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Anybody who trusts themselves to the rule of this son, the salvation of this son, this king, they will be safe. And even those who've been rebels, who've been part of the coup, if they take refuge in him, they too will be blessed. They'll receive and experience his salvation. Messiah, the Messiah, is God's appointed king who will rule over all. It it assumes that this world is a bit of a mess, that evil and revolt spreads its tentacles into every nook and cranny of international politics and the privacy of each heart. And we can't get out of this mess on our own. We need a Messiah. And God kept saying through the Old Testament, one day, one day, one day. And Peter says, you're the one. Jesus, it's you. This stunning realisation that Jesus is not just some outstanding man, but the saviour of humanity sent by God, the king and ruler of all who claims allegiance of every person on planet Earth. Their eyes are opened at last. See, what they've witnessed are not merely party tricks, but what the Messiah would do when he came, healing and feeding and forgiving and raising dead people, showing his power even over death itself doing what only the Messiah would be capable of doing, having authority over all evil and all its effects. And Jesus says, yep, I don't tell anybody. And then in verse 31, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach them from that time forward that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, the Messiah, is going to die. He's going to suffer and be killed. See, up to this point in Mark's Gospel, Mark has kept raising for us the question, who's Jesus? Who is it who can command the wind and the waves? And they say, yes, sir. Who is it who can say to a dead girl, come on, get up. It's just like sleep. He kept raising that question. Now we've got the answer to that question. He's the Messiah. Then the question turns to what has he come to do? What's his mission? If you're reading Mark with a friend, 
um, reading Uncover, helping them to see for themselves. This is a really crucial section of Mark's Gospel because it allows us to raise the question for all of us personally, who do I say Jesus is? And help people work towards an answer. But also to move the discussion now, from now on it's about what has he come to do? If he's the Messiah, how will he save the world and rule the world? And the way Jesus starts doesn't look all that promising. He says he's going to die. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Jesus, <laughs> excuse me, you're wrong. Now, uh, you can sympathise with Peter, can't you? He's read Psalm 2. What's the Messiah going to do? He's going to rule all the nations. Anybody who revolts against him, he's going to crush. And Jesus says, I'm going to be crushed. You can understand he's a bit confused, but can you see the incongruity? Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're God's chosen king. And you're wrong. Like, who's going to say that? It's like me saying to God, God, you're God, but you're wrong. Like, who am I to say that? Hey, Peter and the disciples, they see, finally they see, but they see like trees walking. They don't see clearly. There's some light, but it's still all blurry. And so in verses 34 to 38, Jesus spells out the implications. Now, not just to the disciples, but to the crowds. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, let's just unpack that a little bit. To deny yourself is not to deny yourself chocolate. You can deny yourself chocolate, but still keep living for yourself, can't you? To deny yourself is to say no to self-interest, to selfishness. It assumes that all of us naturally live for ourselves. It's our default position. We always decide on what's best for me. And Jesus says the first step in being a disciple, in following him as the Messiah, is a decisive no to self. Why? Well, why is that the first step? Well, because he's the Messiah and I'm not. See, to live for me is to revolt against the Messiah's rule. It's to say, oh, I'm in charge. It's, it's my life. I'll do with it as I please. It's to shake my fist at God's king. I might do that actively. I'm, I might do it very quietly and gently. But if Jesus is the Messiah, he's got to be my Messiah, doesn't he? And that means denying myself, no longer living for myself and all that suits me. The second step, he says, is to take up your cross. Now, again, we can sort of domesticate this idea, but in, in the world Jesus is speaking in, it's very clear what that meant. Because when you are condemned to die by crucifixion, the worst form of death you could possibly imagine, the most degrading and shameful, you would have to do the, the walk, the march to the place of execution, carrying the cross piece that you are going to be executed with. And that's what Jesus means. You've got to be ready to die. Walk the walk to your own death. Why? Why do you need to do that if you're following Jesus, if he's your Messiah? Because that's where he's heading. He's going to death. And if you're going to be loyal to him, if you're going to stick with him, then you put yourself in the same firing line, don't you? You can't be his disciple. You can't follow him unless you take up your cross. If you're not prepared to die, then your loyalty is elsewhere, like me and saving my own life, saving my own skin. But to deny yourself and take up your cross seems a really dumb idea, doesn't it? Like, would you voluntarily do that? 
If we, if we ask today, who here would like to deny themselves and take up their cross? Would you say, yeah, that's me, I'm in? Oh, I very much doubt it. That's the most unattractive thing I've ever heard of. I wouldn't want to do it. I was hoping to live a long life and finish my uni degree and have a good job and a career and a family and eventually retire and enjoy some cruises around the world. And Jesus is saying, I've got to take up my cross. Who'd choose that? Well, Jesus knows that's what we're thinking. And he addresses it in that last section from verses 35 to 38. He spells out what it could look like to take up your cross and follow him or what it might not look like if you don't. He does it with contrasting. But the contrast is sort of confusing. The first time you read verse 35, it sounds like mumbo-jumbo. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Hasn't he just contradicted himself? Let me try and set it out in a way that I hope will make sense to you. What he's saying is if, if you choose to save your life now, not take up your cross, but in self-protection and continuing to live for yourself, you save your life, then when Jesus returns, you will lose your life. If, on the other hand, you lose your life now, you take up your cross and you might even get killed for that, for Jesus and the gospel, you will save your life then. You'll be given life. In verses 36 and 37, he, he considers, well, what if saving your life has the best possible outcome? You gain the whole world. You know, your Bill Gates and Bezos and all those people, um, all wrapped up in one. You, you own the world. But in the judgment, you lose your life. What have you gained? That's a pretty poor outcome, isn't it? Ultimately, if for eternity you've got nothing, even if you did gain the whole world now, and no matter how much money you've got, you can't buy your soul back. God doesn't take checks. Sorry to tell you this. And then he gives a bit more flesh to it in verse 38. If you're ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation... I'll be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of the angels. Uh, the opposite presumably is true as well. If they're proud of Jesus, if, we're, if we own Jesus now, he will own us then. That is, our attitude to Jesus now will determine his attitude to me then. And it assumes that it's never going to be popular to follow Jesus, to own Jesus. It could cost you your life. It could cost you something much less than your life, but it'll cost you something. Because the world that killed Jesus isn't his fan, nor the fan of his followers. Now, the options are very stark, aren't they? Totally binary. He doesn't give you a third option because there isn't a third option. But I want you to notice that what Jesus is doing in verses 35 to 38 is persuading you and me to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Because the consequences of not doing that, of doing what comes naturally, our, our default of saving our life, will be disastrous. They'll be terrifying. Short-term attractive, but long-term absolute disaster. But in contrast to that, giving our lives to Jesus, living for him, short-term is going to be difficult. You might even lose your life, but for eternity, it'll be wonderful. You will have life. There are reports coming out of Afghanistan in the last week of Christians in Afghanistan, pastors, churches. And it seems that the Taliban, if the reports are true, are going house to house in many of the cities and towns in uh, Afghanistan, trying to find Christians, and if they find them, shooting them on the spot. Now, I, I don't know how that affects you. That, 
for me, it's sort of like, that's nightmare territory. I can't imagine what it would be like for that to happen to me and to be put in that situation. But Jesus' promise is, you lose your life for him, in loyalty to him, in keeping your allegiance to him, you will gain it. It won't be a bad deal. But I want you to realise all this depends on the identity of Jesus. If he's not God's Messiah, what Jesus is saying here is totally weird. In fact, it's evil, isn't it? He's saying, stake your life, stake everything in the world that you have on me, on me being the Messiah. If I'm not the Messiah, I can't save you in the end. It's totally stupid to lose your life for me. It's dumb to deny yourself. But if I am the Messiah, then it's totally dumb not to. To live for myself, to shake my fist at God's Messiah, is going to end in disaster. It can end no other way. So who do you think he is? Just someone with a Messiah complex? Or God's Messiah? Because if he is the Messiah, it makes total sense. He will return one day to put this world to rights permanently and fully as the ruler of the whole universe. Jesus is very explicit, isn't he? There are two ways to live. No third way. There's only two ways. And which one you choose really comes out of, it flows from your answer to the question, who do you say Jesus is? Now, there's lots of answers to that question floating around. You find them everywhere on the internet. Some people say he's just a myth. He, he never existed. But can I say the academic world of ancient history departments has no doubt about his existence. He's left too big a footprint in history. That sounds like deliberate blindness, doesn't it? Conscious bias, eyes firmly shut. Others will say, and many people around this campus would say, well, he was a good man, he was a great teacher, even a prophet. But he can't merely be that given what he says in these verses, can he? Either this is true and he's much more than a prophet, or it's not true and he's not a prophet. He's not even a good man, he's an evil man. Uh, Jesus claimed to be much more than those things, to be the Messiah, God's King, claiming allegiance and loyalty of every person on planet Earth, including you and me, and God's Saviour, who alone can rescue you from eternal destruction. So can I gently just press you for your answer to the question, who, who do you say Jesus is? But given what we've seen today, I hope you realise you sort of can't avoid answering that question because to ignore the question is actually to give, you, give an answer. To just keep living for yourself shows that you've decided he's not the Messiah. And what he said and what he's done has no significance for you. It might be unconscious bias, it might be conscious. Some, I guess, are not sure yet. Can I encourage you to keep seeing for yourself? Keep looking, keep exploring. Jesus didn't ask his disciples this question, who do you say I am, on first meeting. He said, come and hang around with me. Come and look at what I do. Come and hear me teach. Come and see me do stuff that will make your jaw drop. And then I'll pose the question. So keep exploring. You don't have to make a decision today if you don't know enough. But I know many of us convinced that Jesus is God's Messiah. I am. I've been convinced for many years. I have my doubts occasionally, but I go back and look at the evidence. Yes, he is God's Messiah. There's no other answer that makes sense. And what Jesus is saying is your answer to that question, who do you say I am, is your commitment. Or to put it the other way around, 
Your commitment reveals your real answer to the question, who do you think Jesus is? Because if Jesus is God's Messiah, then the only viable, the only sensible option is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Can I ask if you're convinced that he's the Messiah? Is that an accurate description of your life? Because you never move to that position by accident. You never drift into denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. That's sort of like drifting into a cold shower. You don't do it, do you? It takes a conscious, deliberate decision. A conscious act of the will. Now, if you've never done that, but you are convinced Jesus is God's Messiah, why not do it today? Do business with Jesus. Deny yourself. Say no to just living for yourself as you have been living. Take up your cross. Be willing to die for him and follow him. But maybe you have taken that step. You know you have in the past, but I want you then to reflect on today. Reflect on the past week, the past month. Is that what your life's been like? Would that be a good description of how you've been living? Or, like I often do, have you been sort of drifting away? Gaining the world actually looks pretty attractive. Maybe I could sort of do the splits and put one foot on, on each. And our loyalty to Jesus can cool. We've started to be ashamed of him. We don't want to own him especially with some of our best friends. Luke's account of this says, take up your cross daily. Yes, there's a decision, a decisive decision to make, but there's a daily decision to make as well. And so for me and for many of us, I think today's another day to decide again, will I take up my cross and follow Jesus? And be assured all who take refuge in him will be blessed. I want to finish with this quote from a guy called Jim Elliott. Jim was a a young university student. He became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. He and some of his mates, five of them all together, decided soon after graduation to go to Ecuador to try and take this news of Jesus to a tribe that had never heard, never had any uh, connection, actually, contact with uh, anybody but their own tribes. Um, And he was speared to death by that tribe at the age of 29. In his diary... A few days before he was speared, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Famous words, you might be familiar with them. They're true words though, aren't they? They reflect exactly what Jesus said. You're not a fool to give up what you can't keep to gain what you cannot lose. I hope and pray that will be your anthem and my anthem. Amen.